The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're glad that you tuned into this particular hour because we have an excellent guest that we're going to be talking to about a very important subject. Emmett Lewis Till was a 14-year-old African-American who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955 after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. The brutality of his lynching and the fact that his killers were acquitted drew not only national but international attention to the long history of violent persecution of African Americans in the United States. Our guest today is Devery Anderson, who's author of The Definitive Account of Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement. Devery is a graduate of the University of Utah. He has a master's degree from George Washington University. He has written many books on Mormon history, an award-winning four-part series on that history. He is the author of the book that we're going to be talking about and is working on several others. He has published several books uh, that relate to, uh, as I previously said, Mormon history. This book that we're going to be talking about was released by the University Press of Mississippi in August of 2015 to very high acclaims and has now been optioned by Hollywood, as I previously mentioned in the first hour, to be the basis of season one of Women of the Movement, which is an anthology about the civil rights movement. It's produced by Will Smith and Jay-Z, among other people. Devery, welcome to St. Louis In Tune. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you today. I, uh, you know, when I do preparation for a show, I was telling Mark, uh, co-host, that many times, um, you know, it's an emotional impact. This particular show... um, really, really is emotional. The The topic is just horrific. And as I've been reading your book, which, folks, I highly recommend uh, that you get it, um, it is, it's just incredulous what happened. Before we get into the story, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, things that I haven't talked about to help folks understand um, how you came about writing this book with the history that you have? Well, I, I came upon Emmett Till. I discovered Emmett Till personally in the fall of 1994 as a new student at the University of Utah. I'd been interested in, in uh, African-American history, and so I rented or checked out of the library a video on the history of the civil rights movement called Eyes on the Prize. It was part one of a six or seven part series. And the first segment of part one was a 15-minute look at the Emmett Till case, and that was my introduction to it. And I, from that very moment, and I can remember where I was, uh, where I was sitting and everything, the moment I saw that, and and like you, I, I, it was very emotional to me, and I could not get this case out of my mind. And I spent another 10 years just trying to 
just learn what I could about it. There wasn't a lot that was published back then in, 19, in the mid-90s. There are a few books, a few articles, a few other little things. And I read all that, and the turning point for me was it, about two years after I discovered Emmett Till when I interviewed his mother for a class project. I got a hold of her, arranged to interview her over the phone, and did so. And that began a six-year relationship with her until her death in in uh, 2003. And so that brought the case you know, over over the years, I learned more about the case and getting to know her and later other family members made it very personal for me. So I was trying to view it through the lens of a historian as well as a human being who just uh, was uh, so saddened and shocked by this tragedy. And in time, when in 2004, this is 10 years after I discovered Emmett Till, in 2004, after Mamie's Till's passing, and after the Justice Department opened an investigation into the case, I decided that it was time for me to to write the book I always wanted to read on this subject, hmm. because there hadn't been a fully comprehensive telling of the story from beginning to end, and the end was still to be written because the Justice Department was doing this investigation. So I thought, you know, I want to include their findings in this. I don't know how it's going to wrap up. And so I had this kind of unique um, opportunity to, to research and write a book on a historical case where the final chapter was, had still had a big question mark mm -hmm. around it. I didn't know how it was going to end, but I saw that as a challenge. And so that began that process. And I... Um, I spent you know, another 10 years after that researching and writing, uh, interviewing people, spending a lot of time in archives in Mississippi and Chicago. And so it was my fascination with that history and my, uh, my love of history as a history major in school uh, that, that prompted the whole thing and got my attention, got my interest, and sustained that interest over, over the years. It never let up for a second. And I think one of the things that has struck me about your book in, in reading it is it's very detailed, even your footnotes, where you talk about some, I don't want to say contradictions, but as time goes on and people's memories lapse or they've read a story uh, who maybe have been involved, they, they've read the dialogue or they've read other, what other people have said and, and stories changed. You know, 10 years from the time that you begin to the time that's published, people might go, well, golly, did you not have time or what was the thing? But you were very detailed and you wanted to tell the accurate story, correct? Yes, and that was very important because that video that I watched in 1994 had some errors in it, it turns out. But it also turns out that other writers just took those things at face value and and just continued perpetuating these myths in print and and so I was determined to get to the bottom when I of things when I saw people who were who were for instance at the Bryant grocery store with Emmett Till uh, when he whistled it at Carolyn Bryant you know that happened in front of witnesses but some of them said different things some of them said oh he didn't whistle he was whistling at someone making a wrong move on a checkerboard because there was a kids playing checkers out in front of the store one person said oh he never whistled at all i never heard anything and others said he did and emma till's mother said that well i mean she wasn't there but she said that he um she had taught him to whistle 
uh, because he had a stuttering problem that if he whistled, if he got hung up on a word and just kind of blew it out with a whistle, that um, that was how he she could get him past his stuttering. And she felt that that's probably what he did at the store. And even though she wasn't there, being his mother, people, that carries a lot of weight. Even people don't really analyze, well, you know, maybe he whistled sometimes for that reason, but didn't mean every time he ever whistled, it was to blow out a stutter. He could have been whistling at a girl. Others said he did. Some said he didn't. So you have all this contradictory stuff. And on top of that, you have people saying one thing in 1955 and then another thing decades later as they're struggling to remember. And so I had to get to the earliest comments to see how many of those earliest reports agreed with each other. And those, to me, seemed the most accurate to go by. And so it took a lot of work to weed through not just what happened at the store, but several other um, events surrounding the case as it unfolded that time and memory changed the story. And I wasn't satisfied to just perpetuate the same myths or feel safe in agreeing with a certain person. Uh, I just I had to get to what the truth was. To me, it was just facts matter, and I have to go there first, and then um, from there, analyze what it all means. Well, I, I can tell you, thank you very much for taking that time, taking those 10 years to sort those things out, because that's critical in whether a myth is perpetuated or you can really find the truth. And sometimes you can't, and, and uh, I know you, you talk about that in the book. Can you give us a little kind of synopsis of of the story? And, uh, you know, Emmett Till was not from Mississippi originally, but he was living in Chicago at the time. But can you give us a synopsis kind of to to the point at, at which he was um, – you know, I guess just kind of go through because people, I want people to understand there might be people that have never heard of him. There might be people that have, oh yeah, I've heard the name, but I don't remember the story. And um, there are people that really are intimately acquainted with everything. Yes, I'd be happy to. So Emmett Till had, uh, was in 1955, was 14 years old. Uh, he turned 14 in July of 55. And he was from Chicago. And the events that make his case significant in his life significant began to unfold a month later so he was barely 14 being from Chicago uh, he had spent a little bit of time in the south as a as an infant and toddler and then about five years before that just went down with his mother or grandmother and was accompanied with by them and so didn't really experience it uh, the way he did finally in in 1955 as a teenager this time he decided he was invited to go to Mississippi with his great uncle who was visiting in Chicago briefly for a family funeral he invited Emmett and two of his grandsons to uh, accompany him back to Mississippi one of them couldn't come for another week and so Emmett uh, Wheeler Parker who was a 16 year old cousin of Emmett's, but grandson of Moses Wright, uh, and uh, Moses Wright together, those three took a train down to Mississippi, and on August 20th, 1955, and it was the beginning of cotton-picking uh, season, and so the understanding was that Emmett would join Moses Wright and his three sons, he had three teenage sons at home too, uh, so these sons, the grandsons, and Emmett visiting, these, they would all pick cotton uh, and earn some money. And also, they wanted to have, have part of the time to play and to swim and do all the things outdoors that Emmett 
couldn't really enjoy in Chicago. That was the appeal of going down there for him. Well, Emmett was not from the South, and his personality was a little bit different, too. He was a very confident 14-year-old, liked to be the center of attention, liked to tell jokes and play jokes and laugh, and, you know, just he was a good kid, a nice kid, but he, you know, he was the kind that would, um, you know, like to just be right out in front of everybody, and he would brag a little here and there and things like that, all in fun. I'm sure we all know people like that. Maybe we were we were somebody like that ourselves <laughs> when we were young. But um, and so that was a bit of a concern. People who knew his personality thought you know he could get in trouble in Mississippi, and it was standard anyway. If you were from the north, you you usually if you're a black northerner, you typically your family came from the south and had migrated north years earlier. So most people had relatives still in the south, and if you went down there to visit, especially if you're a teenage boy. Um, unsupervised in this case um, you got to talk from your parents before you left saying when you go down there this is how you act you say yes ma'am and no ma'am to white people and um, uh, yes sir no sir uh, don't look a white woman in the eye don't talk to her don't initiate any conversation get off the sidewalk if white person walks your way especially if it's a white woman that was how black people knew how to act who lived in Mississippi um, this is Emmett's first time really hearing that. And so probably didn't register fully or he didn't take it all that seriously. So after three days of being in the South, uh, Emmett and some of his cousins jumped in the family car, drove about three miles into town in Money, Mississippi. And town there was in Money was just three or four stores, a cafe, um, post office, things like that, just a handful of stores on a main street. And they were on their way to a cafe, but the cafe hadn't opened yet for the evening. It was a juke joint. And uh, so they saw this game, this checkers game, going on in front of the Bryant Grocery and Meat Market. Emmett went, or they all went over there, joined in the checkers game, and then some of them went inside to, to buy some items in the store. The Bryant store was being uh, clerked that night by Roy Bryant's wife, 21-year-old Carolyn. And she had been a beauty pageant winner, and she was known to be attractive. And Emmett went in and bought some bubble gum. And when he came out, Carolyn Bryant followed him out. And in front of all of his friends, he, he waved and said bye at her. That upset her, and maybe because of the way he said it, or he didn't say bye, ma'am, or something, but she started to walk towards a car that was there. And then as she was walking towards the car, Emmett whistled at her, just did a wolf whistle. And it scared those who were with him, because at that point, you know, they knew this taboo had been broken. And so Emmett got scared when the others got scared, and they jumped in the car and drove back to the ride home three miles away. And on the way out there, Emmett said, please don't tell Uncle Moles what happened uh, because I don't want him to send me back to Chicago. So at that point, he knew that the taboo had been broken. Well, they forgot about it. Over the next three days, nothing happened. But on this was on a Wednesday. On the Saturday night slash Sunday morning at 2 a.m., um, there was a knock at the right home door. And when Moles right opened the door, there were two men standing there. Uh, one had a flashlight in one hand and a pistol in the other, and they said, we want the boy that did that smart talk in money. And so the the rights, for whatever reason, their lights weren't working. Most of the bulbs didn't have bulbs 
most of the fixtures didn't have bulbs in the socket, and the one that did was burned out. And so this was all done in the dark other than the flashlight. And the, the men demanded to go from room to room until they found the one they wanted. They didn't know his name. They found him, asked him if he was the one who did the talk. He said, yeah. They got mad at the way he addressed them and said, don't say yeah to me or I'll blow your head off. Made him put on his shoes and socks, went outside, and Moses Wright said he heard somebody waiting in a car, and it was so dark he couldn't even make up the vehicle, what kind of vehicle it was. But when they brought Emmett out, he said they asked somebody, is this the right one, the right boy? And he said he heard a voice that sounded lighter than a man's voice that he thought was a woman. And he heard the voice say, yes, it is. And with that, they put him in the back of the vehicle and drove off. Three days later, his body surfaced in the Tallahatchie River. He'd been beaten, shot. Uh, a 75-pound cotton gin fan barbed wired around his neck to weigh him down, and he was put in the Tallahatchie River. 17-year-old fisherman discovered him. Well, at this point, he'd been missing for a few days. His mother was frantic. Uh, the kidnapping had made the papers at that point. But once the body was discovered, then it became a murder case. And the Chicago papers were covering it, the Southern papers were covering it. And because he was from the North, it was giving the case much more attention than it normally would have. Uh, something like this happened in the South. But when his mother, when they sent the body home, and there was some controversy in that, the sheriff wanted the body buried right away. And within three hours of the body being discovered, there was already a grave dug, and they're in the midst of holding a funeral when... Uh, the sh deputy sheriff and another uncle came and said, I just talked to Emmett's mother. She does not want this body buried here. It's going back to Chicago no matter what. And so um, they took it to a, a, a funeral home. They prepared it for shipping and went up north. Emmett's mother went to the funeral home up north, the Rainer and Sons funeral home in Chicago, and identified her son which is a very hard task, not only because she was a grieving mother who had just, her only child was, you know, was dead and murdered, but he was almost impossible to identify because of the beating that took place as well as the, the decomposition over the three days after his death, and then on top of that, being in the water for three days. So she saw this bloated mess, but she, and she, but she it was clear that he had been the victim of a, of a horrible beating and shooting. And so she said, I, I can never explain this to anybody, what I'm seeing. The world needs to see what they did to my son. And so she insisted on an open casket funeral. And for five days, people filed by that casket and saw Emmett Till in his casket. And pictures of that uh, were published in the black press, Jet Magazine, the Chicago Defender, and then over time, others. And that's what, at that point, the case was just news everywhere. And around that same time as that was happening, the men were indicted for kidnapping and murder. They went to trial just a few weeks later. This, we're now, you know, September 6th, when Emma was finally buried. Uh, September 19th, they went on trial for murder. So it was very quickly done. Uh, all white, all male jury. Because in Mississippi, that's that's what you had. You had to be a registered voter. There wasn't one registered voter in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, that was black, and so they were. And women couldn't serve on juries then. So it was a jury of twelve white men. Despite the uncle uh, giving testimony and pointing out the men who kidnapped Emmett Till, 
despite identifying the ring that was on Emmett Till's finger that had his father's initials on it, it a ring he inherited from his deceased father. And, and despite Mamie Till, even though it was difficult, she, was, she, she had no question that was her son. Despite all of that, this jury, after a five-day trial and only three days of testimony, um, the jury acquitted these men of murder within 67 minutes of deliberating. And they, they still had kidnapping charges, uh, but, uh, and that was in a different county because where the kidnapping took place was in LaFleur County. So in, in November, the grand jury met, and again, the sheriff and the deputy sheriff uh, and, uh, who arrested these men, they both got kidnapping confessions out of them originally. They said they let Emmett Till go, but they, had, they confessed to kidnapping. Moses Wright testified at the grand jury on that hearing, too, and said, yes, these men came to the home and kidnapped Emmett Till. And despite the open and shut case for kidnapping, the grand jury didn't even indict this time around. So there was no trial for kidnapping. So at that point, the men were basically free. Around that same time, they had been secretly inter being interviewed by a journalist named William Bradford Huey, who knew that they could not be retried for murder, although this was between the, the murder trial and the kidnapping non-indictment. Um, he interviewed these men through their attorneys at first, arranged to interview them. They basically said, you know, we know you guys killed Emmett Till, and you can't be retried, so we'll pay you, I'll pay you to talk about it. So they did. They sat in the attorney's office in Sumner, Mississippi, and uh, told the story of how they kidnapped and murdered Emmett Till and were paid $3,150 for it. And back then, that was a lot. Oh. And, and so they basically not only killed Emmett Till, they profited off it. But the thing is, that article... I mean, it made a big splash when it was released because here we have the men talking about how they killed Emmett Till and did so freely and proudly. There were others who were involved in the murder with them. Witnesses heard Emmett Till being beaten in a, in a shed, and they saw several white men coming in and out of the shed. One witness was able to place Emmett Till on the back of a truck with four men in the front, four white men in the front, and a few black men in back who were restraining him. So there were others who were involved. But when Milam and Bryant, the two men who, were, who had been acquitted, when they told this story to the reporter, they were very careful not to um, mention any other names and not to implicate anybody in this because those men could still be tried. The story that they sold to Look Magazine um, they created a narrative that got a lot of publicity and finalized any doubt that they were guilty of murder. You know, no, nobody could doubt it at that point. But also, it, it created a, a narrative where the others who were involved pretty much got away because nobody was searching for them anymore after this. Once they got that, quote, confession from these men, it was like, okay, we've got that. That's good enough. And it was read into the congressional record. It became the story that people told from then on. And so that's why when, when the, the FBI began investigating the case in 2004, 
that was so important because they had to they had to get to the truth at that point because there were others involved, some who were still living, and they had to come to to determine whether these people should be prosecuted or not. And over the course of that investigation, more information was uncovered. They found the original trial transcript, which had been missing for decades. Uh, found the murder weapon, even. Seriously. And, wow. uh, and other people came forward that um, hadn't talked before. And so it did a lot of good. It didn't result in a um, in any other uh, convictions. They, they uh, held a grand jury in 2007 to see if there was evidence to charge Carolyn Bryant with manslaughter because she, there was evidence that she, um, you know, when Moses Wright heard a voice saying that's, this is the right one. Uh, there were other kids locally who her husband confronted and said, are you the one that did this? And whistled at my wife or, or talked fresh to my wife. And she would say, no, he's not the right one. So, in her aiding them in that way, it technically provided a way for them to charge her with manslaughter. I don't know how well it would have held up, you know, depending on if she was there willingly or, or what. I'm sure there were a lot of factors that would have been involved. But the grand jury did not uh, indict her in 2007. And just today, it was announced that a second probe they were doing in the last couple of years was closed out as well without any further um plans to prosecute her or and she was really the last one left and so that's kind of where that stands as far as that goes now um so there's the the, the 1955 and 56 case as it unfolded there was the 2004 to 2007 case that unfolded and i and i covered all of that in my book and so that's one reason it's so detailed and one reason it's as long as it is and and to have access to that information that they uncovered in 2004, this wouldn't have been a very good book, or not nearly as good, in my view, if, if I had finished it any time before I actually did. Now, one of the things that you do talk about in there that I know was uh, very emotional for you was there was a request to exhume his body, and do an autopsy. There had not been an autopsy performed um, back right after his death. And I'm presuming that this was the time of the FBI investigation. But if, if you would kind of comment on that. And then what was found in the shed in the cemetery and your emotion of being with that. Oh, yes. Well, yes. As part of the investigation, they knew they needed they were going to need to exhume his body because the argument, the defense argument, the main argument made at the original trial or in the trial back in 1955 was that Emmett Till's body was too unrecognizable to prove that it was him. And so the state's case was that we don't know that that was him. So without a body, you don't have a murder, basically. And they wanted to make sure that that argument could not be used again. You know, we have DNA testing now and so many things that could have been done now to prove that. And so that's what they did. They exhumed his body. And when they did, they placed that original casket in storage because it was a significant casket because of the photos of people filing by his body over that five-day period, the tens of thousands of people that filed by. Uh, that casket was one that had been photographed and was, it was very significant. They wanted to put it into a museum down the road. 
So they put it in storage. They buried him in a new casket after the autopsy. So the autopsy revealed that his injuries were were worse than was known before. Before, because he hadn't been examined, people just went by what they saw, and they saw the damage to his head, uh, that he'd been beaten, that his skull had been crushed. There were so many things that had happened. But he had also, turns out, he had broken wrists and broken bones in his legs to indicate that the beating was much more severe. So the torture that he went through um, was worse than, than we ever thought. And so that reality was very hard to for people to, you know, you're getting this a new dose of of that suffering um, and having to, to think about that and relive that and and just try to understand it. Um, but for me, because I knew the, the casket was at that cemetery, I went there on a very snowy, right in the middle of a Chicago blizzard in February of 2007, and I asked the cemetery manager if I could see the casket. At first she was hesitant just because she said there's a blizzard going on up there and it's you know hard to get <laughs> from here to the shed too easily but she had this one of her workers do it for you know prepare it for me anyway so they took me out to the shed took the casket down it was covered with this thick canvas and they took it down opened it up and left just left me there so suddenly I felt a part of history because of those thousands and thousands of people who filed by that casket, that open casket looking in, I was suddenly one of those. I joined that group from 50 years earlier. And one of the interesting things the FBI said when they, when they exhumed the casket was that there were thousands of fingerprints on it. And on the glass covering, when you open the lid, there was, Emmett Till was underneath a thick, clear glass so that people wouldn't touch him or smell him or, or both, I guess, um, because of the decomposition, there would have been a smell. So that was a thick glass that sealed off everything. Well, that glass was still there, and there were fingerprints all over it as well. Oh. And I did that at the same time, right around the same time the grand jury was meeting in Greenville, Mississippi, to decide whether to prosecute Carolyn Bryant. The first time around, this funeral was going on as a grand jury was meeting to um, indict Milam and Bryant. Hmm. So to me, that was significant because I, I knew there was still more to come for this case. There could still be a, more prosecution. The door hadn't been closed. There was still that question mark, as it was for those who filed by that casket years earlier. So that was an emotional thing for me, very much so. And I couldn't bring myself to even leave that room. It was so cold. It was just an open outdoor shed but I just stayed there as long as I could the elements had certainly um, done its work on the casket there was a lot of rust the fabric was very brittle and and brown it looked rusty and the uh, glass the glass was no longer clear you could still kind of see into the fabric where Emmett Till had once Lane, but I, um, when I looked in, and I, this is what I write in the book because it just, this came just flowing out of me when I wrote this prologue to the book. Is that I looked in there to look down like I was one of those people who filed by all those years earlier and trying to imagine myself looking at Emmett Till, but because the glass was no longer clear, it had turned dark. I just saw a reflection, and I saw my own reflection as I tried to see Emmett Till. 
And I remember thinking, you know, what am I, I'm seeing me, so what's the message from that? And I remember just coming away thinking, it's just a matter of luck that I am who I am, born when I was and where I was, and all those people, you know, when we, there's that biblical verse about seeing through a glass darkly, and, you know, in a literal sense, yeah, I was looking through a glass darkly on that day, but those people that filed by so many years earlier, they could see right through to Emmett Till. It was a clear glass, but in, in, a, in their own way, they were looking through a glass darkly because they didn't have the time and perspective behind them yet that it took to fully understand this case. And I felt like I had that. So I wasn't looking through a glass darkly in, a, in that sense, but in a literal sense I was. But by, looked, by seeing my own reflection, I just thought, you know, who is this person I'm staring at? And why do you feel passionately about this? And what if you'd been born in Mississippi in the 30s? Um, how would you have felt about this case as it unfolded? And as a white male, I would have likely felt differently. Um, you know, being raised in a racist environment with likely racist parents been hard for me to magically not be part of that and it scared me at the same time and I thought you know so much of this is a matter of luck our views you know um, on these things it just depends on who raised us and where and when and it's scary that 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 line between our own basic human instincts and and being taught to hate how that can how how that can get messed up so easily how that line is so fragile and it kind of really was an eye-opener that day and so that was my chance to write in the book in the prologue my own feelings my own thoughts my own emotions and try to be an objective historian the rest of the book but i had to have an outlet <laughs> to be able to do that a little bit um and it's separate from the rest of the book and so i felt i pulled it off okay <laughs> yeah you you pulled it off very well it was very it was intriguing to me to know what your emotions were and I, I could, I, I visualized in my mind as you were describing things, uh, what I thought it looked like, and was really impacted by your emotion. Also, what what is this impact? Then, you know that. Pardon me. Well, I was going to say, since then, that casket has been fully restored and now sits in the Smithsonian in the New African American Museum. So. Millions, I'm sure, of people have now filed by that casket in that setting in the Smithsonian, and it's a very sacred space. It's the only room in the Smithsonian where you can't take photos, the Emmett Till room, with the casket. But I had that unique opportunity to stand before it in all its its, its ugliness, in, in, the, in, in a way. You saw the, the effects of this body laying in that for, for years when I stood before it. And I've been to it twice since then at the Smithsonian, and it's so different now. It's peaceful, and it's something you can contemplate in a different way, but standing in a blizzard, when I saw it, I contrast those two experiences, and I'm one of the few that got to do both, that, that's, still living. Yeah, that would be an interesting comparison. And uh, the, the impact of this, of the Emmett Till case, I know there was a time when it was obviously on the front pages of every paper, and then things gradually declined, and very few people heard about it, and it's kind of made a comeback. What, what do you attribute that to, and what do you feel is the impact of, of this case and his life? 
Well, various things brought it back at, at different times. That's interesting. For some reason, the 30th anniversary started some, some new interest. That's when his mother started to become more of a public figure. No one had really heard from her in decades prior to 1985. And then later on with the investigation, that made a big difference. But in the last few years, uh, with the various racial events we see, like the Trayvon Martin case was one where, again, a, a kid teenage kid um and you know made some purchases at a store too and that people have pointed that out so you you see a few similarities just in that but um that this resulted in an acquittal and there was so much controversy behind it as well and people like in the emmett tills day were lined up on both sides of the issue and they weren't going to budge um and uh people felt a lot of people felt that Yes, Zimmerman's a hero because he was trying to keep the peace in his neighborhood, and he's been paraded around as one but in some circles ever since. And then there was Tamir Rice with his toy gun, and there was Michael Brown. But the, the, and, and each of these created some a degree of outrage. I mean, certainly. But the George Floyd one seemed to really be the moment it all changed again. And one of the reasons people evoke the name of Emmett Till, and they did in each of these cases. Emmett Till was brought up over and over and over, and right before John Lewis's death, he even talked about how George Floyd was his, uh, or Emmett Till was his, his George. George Floyd right. when he was a youth. And with Emmett Till, there had been so many lynchings. There had been thousands of lynchings in the South prior to him, and there had been legal cases with the NAACP and winning the Brown decision with the Supreme Court. But then Emmett Till came along and then just Bam. He wasn't the first lynching. He wasn't the South, but he was one that just suddenly woke people up. And in these other cases, um, George Floyd seems to be the one that, that woke us up again. I'm hearing people say the words Black Lives Matter now, who never said them before, wouldn't have before. And so, you know, in trying to figure out, you know, what's, what, what was it this time? Well, I know in Emmett Till's day, uh, it was people saying, we've just finally had enough. And it took a grassroots movement to really make the difference. The Brown decision, those were battles fought in courtrooms and before the Supreme Court. But to really make a change, you had to have the people rise up and say, this is enough. And that's what happened after Emmett Till. And, and the movement followed from that, really, with Rosa Parks just a, you know, a couple of months after the trial. And there were protests, not only in the United States, but uh, overseas regarding Emmett Till. Um, it just and it's and when people rise up in that way, yes, there's controversy behind it. People thought the the rallies in that because there were some exceptions to the, you know people uh, conducting themselves in such a way that it branded the entire movement uh, as a bunch of troublemakers and rioters and that. Uh, but those are the exceptions, and and we're seeing that now. And I think we're in at the middle of something now that is. Once again, we're going to see it through. Now, whether we see it, I'm not so naive to think we'll see it through permanently, that everything's going to be great, but we're going to see change come as a result of this, that yes, we'll, many of us will fall asleep again down the road and have to relive this because it's going to take a lot more for equality to happen, but we're going to see this play itself out in a way that nothing has, I think, since Emmett Till. And so people keep reaching back then and saying, what have we learned since then? What's the similarities between Emmett Till and what we're seeing today? The similarities, you know, the people that 
back then, the people that did not want to acknowledge racism would say this could have happened to anybody. It wasn't a hate crime. Why aren't you talking about the white kids that have been murdered up in Chicago? All the stuff we're hearing now. And that's a, that's a typical response when people don't want to face what's really happening to minimize what they see as a, as a movement, to minimize its importance and to minimize its necessity. We saw that then, but we have perspective now. And most people, even today, who don't support Black Lives Matter or don't acknowledge that there's a degree of racism that's still so troubling, um, they recognize Emmett Till was a hate crime. Most people don't have any trouble today recognizing that. I see the most conservative voices out there that recognize that. But that's because they've had a lot of time to really see it in, in context and in history. Um, I wish we could, didn't always need that time. I wish we could, we could solve things so much easier if we could gain that perspective right away by learning from history and not having to wait 50 years and look back and say, oh yeah, that was a hate crime. We should have done something more. Um, we've got hindsight now to tell us and to teach us, and I wish that was good enough. We've been having a conversation with Devery Anderson, who has written the definitive account, Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement. Devery, uh, that is a great book, and I really encourage everyone out there to get a copy of it and to read it and to digest it and to pass it on. Uh, I want to thank you for your 10 years of hard work. What a What a... A project that was and what a labor of I don't want to say a labor of love but it was a labor of your heart and um, not trying to put words in your mouth or emotions in you but I, I, I get what you are doing in the book and as as I've read and I still have a little bit more to finish but um, I, I get what what you're saying and I really appreciate the time you've taken out of your schedule today to talk to us on st. Louis in tune well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me, and it's been nice talking with you.